Welcome back, Siege of New Hampshire listeners. Today I have a bonus episode for you. I recently sat down with my good friend Todd Sepulveda, editor of theprepperwebsite.com and host of the Prepper Website podcast. We did a Q&A about the Siege story and book one in particular. If you're a subscriber to Todd's podcast, you'll have already heard this interview. If you're not one of Todd's subscribers, you can check him out at theprepperwebsitepodcast.com, all one word. Each week, Todd reads one of the best preparedness articles from the Prepper website, adding some of his own commentary and analysis. Ah, but that's enough intro. Let's get into Todd's questions. Hey, Mick. Welcome back to the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks. Well, you you are no stranger to the podcast. I mean, we've done uh, we've done interviews before, and then we've done Prepper Website Lives, which we need to do another one with Brian. We've done that with Chip, and and uh, we've had a lot of fun on those. But on this one, we're going to focus just on uh, your new project, um, and so your your new audiobook, your new audio book podcast that you're you're putting out it's great by the way and uh you provide a lot of great information we're going to talk a little bit about that and not just um, the podcast in itself and and the fact that you're doing an audiobook but we're going to dig into some of the preparedness acts aspects of that so um i'm really excited that you're doing doing it i look forward to it every friday uh being able to download it and, and to listen to it on the weekends so um, let's let's go ahead and dig into some of these questions. The first one that I want to ask you um, is: Tell us what the siege of New Hampshire is all about, and how did you come up with the story? So, kind of the elevator pitch for just what is it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Just tell us, tell us a little. Just what our appetite for those who haven't, you know, I've been talking about it, and I've been encouraging people to go and to to download it. I think uh, you know it's. You, you put a lot of work into it. So when we talk about downloading an audiobook from like Audible or, you know, some of, some of the other places where you can download Audible books or audiobooks, uh, you've, you've done a, a great job in, uh, you know, producing this and you've done it kind of all on your own. So for those who have not taken the plunge to go over and to uh, subscribe to it and listen to it, just let's, you know, whet our appetites a little bit. Well, I guess in a nutshell, it's a story of how ordinary people would have to cope with a grid down and therefore an economy down world. The, the first book is only a little bit of that, but the rest of the series, that's pretty much what it's all about is how would ordinary people cope if that really happened? And, and I like the fact that you say ordinary people, because it, that's what it is. And we, um, we were talking earlier about you know, some of the Amazon reviews where people were like, well, this is kind of uh, a little boring, right? But when you think about it, and I've listened to a lot of audiobooks and I've read a lot of prepper fiction, and some of it is like really over the top. You know, it's like the you 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 do the tactical and you've got you know people that are all geared up and people who've been waiting for the apocalypse. You know, your characters are just like ordinary people, just like you, just like me, just like most of the people listening to this to this podcast, just an ordinary person who has a little bit of understanding of preparedness, a little bit of camping experience, a little bit of Boy Scout experience, but they're dealing with uh, this this situation and, and having to get home from uh, from where they're at. So um, 
uh, yeah, again, like I said, great job on getting that. And I love the fact that it's just ordinary people. Listen, you, and the, at the time of this recording, you've done or you've released 13 audio chapters out there. What's the response been like since then? Well, it's kind of hard to say since I don't have anything to compare it to. I mean, it's it's over a thousand downloads, but I thought, is that good or is that lame? Should I not be saying that out loud? But uh I mean, I was encouraged that at least some people were listening to it. So I don't know. Like I say, I got nothing to gauge it by. Well, I, I know that on the, on the email group, there, there were some response. People were like, we hate Susan. You know, we, we don't like Susan. We like Martin. We like, you know, and different people were, were responding that way. Um, and, and so one of the things that I wanted to respond to, you know, when people are like, we really hate Susan. Uh, my parents, you know, when we were, when I was younger, I remember this one movie that we were watching and we're like, man, I really hate this person. And uh, they're like, well, then the character has done a really great job or, you know, they've done a really great job of acting. And the thing is, is that like, if you really get to the point where I really don't like this person in this book, it is, you know, you've done a great job of writing it and in, in writing, not liking this person. Uh, I, I'm sure that changes. I, I, I'm almost 100% uh, positive that uh, that will change as the books move forward. And maybe we could talk a little bit about that in, in the, you know, as we, as we move through the interview here. But did you pattern the characters after anyone in your life? Sort of, yes. Certainly in book one, uh, they're kind of generalized that um, I take some of the attributes just because, you know, people watching, you just see how people are and find things that are interesting. Uh, I think I'd mentioned in my Q&A episode earlier that uh, the Susan character is actually somewhat patterned after several different people that I knew or know. And uh, she was in the story for a couple of sort of mechanical writerly reasons. One is it's easier to have dialogue than just mental thinking, yeah, because that gets kind of boring where the character's talking to himself in his head all the time. Uh, but I'd sort of uh, thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, bugging out is one of those tropes, but what if you had somebody bugging out that was a through and through city person and had none of those survival skills? How would they manage? And what would that be like for them? Because it's a total out-of-body experience for them. So that would be something uh, quite a bit different. So that's why I included Susan. And that's probably why she's annoying to some people, because she is so helpless. Well, but uh, yeah, the people and the, the, the characters, well, they're mostly fairly minor. Although I will say the Kevin character is patterned after a former boss of mine. So he probably <laughs> wouldn't be flattered. But uh, I thought of him as I was writing the character, and that sometimes helps too when I'm voicing them to uh, think about who they were with their little mannerisms and things. Well, and you've done a great job with the voices. Uh, we've mentioned that before. I've listened to a lot of uh, prepper fiction audiobooks, and a lot of the times the professional, because you're reading this on your own, and I think that is, that's, uh, that's a plus for people who are listening to an audiobook that the author themselves, you know, that they're reading, reading the book. But I've listened to a lot of different audiobooks where people have, you know, they they change their voice for for different names and stuff like that. But uh, you do that for all the characters, and it's very distinguishable. You've even added some of the uh, 
like when the radio was talking, I mean, we you've used some props and different things like that. Uh, it really makes it feel like it's that old school, listen to uh, the radio and, and the radio drama, you know? Uh, were you thinking that that might be a little bit different than just your regular own audiobook when when you were doing it, when you, when you started uh, producing your own audiobook? Well, when I was going through it, one of the things that gave me a puzzle and I thought, well, what are you going to do with that? Was in the book, I can use italics to suggest that it's not somebody really standing there talking, but it's like a radio. I would always do the radio things would be in italics, or if he's reading a text or texting, that would be in italics. And I thought, well, you can't do italics with your voice. So I, I forgot what I, oh, here we go. So I had my expensive prop <laughs> that I would use to do the radio voice. And I would throw a filter in there too, but you know, just something to make it different. So the, uh, the listener hears, all right, that's not somebody sitting beside him talking. That's something different. And that kind of got me started. And the characters, eh, you know, that's kind of, when I think about them in my head, that's kind of what they sound like. So I've tried to get that out. The, uh, the one I had the most fun with, though, was uh, Linwood Varney at the start of this, the most recent chapter. If you haven't listened to it yet, he's. I, I have not listened to it. I normally listen to it on Saturday mornings. And then, you know, we've been, uh, we've been getting into the recording and, and the different things that we're doing. I haven't been able to listen to it. Tell, uh, tell us a little bit about him. Well, he's kind of backwards New England. So he's got kind of a very thick New England accent and he's kind of a crotchety old man. And I thought, well, maybe I'm channeling my inner crotchety old man or something. I don't know, but it was kind of fun to do him anyway. For those that are, uh, when, when you were talking about speaking and doing the radio voice, for those that are listening on the podcast, Mick was holding up a tin can. And so, uh, you know, speaking into a tin can, I think that's uh, it's great using that as a prop. All right. So let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's go ahead and move into the world of preparedness and survival. And, and uh, we, you know, with all of that, now that we've gotten some of the, the, um, the audio book and the story down, so the no, actually, I didn't answer one of your questions. Okay, go for it. Which was, uh, how, how did I come up with the story? How, tell us, how did you come up with it? And um, I, I was almost hoping you were saying I had to walk home one day. And, and you know, it's <laughs> like, that's how you did it. And all the stuff that Martin has in his backpack, that's the stuff that you had. And you went from there. Uh, was it that simple? No, well done. <laughs> That would have been more adventurous, although it would be hard to explain to my wife how I came up with Susan. But um, it is, I used to think that I was just laying in bed at night. And you know, when you lay in bed and you're thinking about all the stuff you're going to do the next day. And so you can't sleep because you're too busy thinking about stuff. So instead, I would think about, well, what if I had to walk home and what would I do? And so that was always such a boring topic. It would put me to sleep. So that was my uh, put myself to sleep routine which is not entirely true, but I had to think back and say, well, why was I thinking about that? And it actually goes back to the uh, Boston Marathon bombings because I was working in Boston at the time. Now, not on that day that it happened because everybody in Massachusetts gets um, Patriots Day off so that they can run the marathon and they don't have traffic. So that's kind of why they did it. I didn't care, I had the day off. So it happened while I was at home, but I, uh, I went to work a couple of days later 
And I always took an early bus. So by the time I got to work, I found out that the city was in lockdown. They had closed the bus terminals. They weren't letting any trains go out. They'd closed the airport because they were on a manhunt for the terrorists. So I thought, oh, great. Everything is closed and I'm stuck in town. And so I was, uh, it was pretty early in the morning yet because they closed it, closed the town at like 630 in the morning. And so, I don't know, eight o'clock-ish or so, I'm out on the street trying to figure out how I'm going to get home because I don't want to stay in town. And uh, it occurred to me, and I did a little bit of checking that there was a bus that goes to the airport that would normally then come back into town and drop people off, but it wasn't going to be able to because South Station was closed. So I thought, oh, if I can just take a cab to the airport, I can get that bus because it can't come into town. So it'll just go back up to New Hampshire. So I'm looking for cabs. There aren't any cabs. You know, the streets are really kind of empty. And there was another lady also in front of the bank uh, looking for cabs, because usually there'd be a half a dozen cabs lined up in front of the bank. That's just one of those cab stand places. And uh, she was looking for a cab ride to the airport, too. So we agreed to share the next cab that we could flag. And we found one and we got a ride to the airport. And uh, there was a, a state trooper checkpoint where he was giving us the evil eye as we uh, we rode through there to make sure we didn't look like terrorists. I was sort of surprised he didn't check the trunk. How did he know we didn't have a trunk full of terrorists? <laughs> but whatever. So we got to the airport and sure enough, my bus showed up and uh, I was able to get a ride and her bus I think showed up just a little before mine. So we both got out. So that was kind of the, you know, getting almost stuck in Boston was the uh, the impetus for me then laying in bed at night thinking, well, what if I did have to walk home? What would I do? What would I need? Where would I go? And, you know, I'd figured out that, well, the number of miles, it's probably like three days worth of walking. Well, then where am I going to sleep on nights one and two? And so I, you know, started mapping out my route and thinking about, well, if I've got to go here, then I'm going to have to do that. And, that also kind of got me into uh, thinking more about my get home bag. Uh, you recall, I think one of the earliest articles that I'd done on your website was uh, testing the gear in my bug out bag. Well, that was kind of the impetus of saying, well, I've got this stuff, but what do I do with it? So I would go out in the woods and I'd sleep for a night and see how my gear worked out and made some changes, did it again, made some more changes. So that was uh, that's the longer backstory for how that story got started. It's a good story. I mean, it's one of those where there's a little bit of, you know, the real life into it. And so, uh, again, going back to, I mean, this is like real, real life for regular people. You know, it's not this thought up uh, story in 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 our heads. It's something that could happen, to, could potentially happen, uh, especially, you know, up there on the Northeast where people are, um they they travel you know into a couple of different states you know through train or whatever uh you know we don't experience that down here at least where i live in houston everybody has a vehicle everybody everybody drives to their uh to their workplace or whatever so um but that's it's something that people would be very familiar with that could possibly happen that's what i think i that's why i love uh the story and and what you've done with it so going in and moving into the character uh, Martin seems to have this really, this real Boy Scout need to take care of Susan, who is a woman. For those who have not listened to the the, the audiobook yet, uh, is not his wife. It's someone that he knows just from uh, you know, from work, kind of going to the bank. So, do you think that this 
chivalry or this this idea to take care of people do you think that this is more or less likely to happen now in the day that we live in as opposed to when you first wrote this book hmm well, I'd like to think that chivalry is uh, a little more ingrained into the uh, the male psyche than uh, just cultural cultural trending. But I guess a uh, question back to you is: Do you did it feel out of place to you? Do you feel like that's old world and it's not modern enough that a modern man would I don't know kick her to the curb or 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 what? When you were asking the question, what did it occur to you? Did it feel odd? Yeah. Um... Not odd for me coming from like a Christian perspective, knowing the world is out there. I mean, the character, Susan, is uh, kind of naive in, in the way that she sees things and the way that she she looks at things. So you know that in uh, just like it plays out in the book, she would be taking taken advantage of. So that's always playing in, in your back in the background of your of your mind. Right. So. I know what I would do and I know how I would respond, but I'm looking at the overall where we are in society right now. And society just seems like everything is crazy and it's, you know, it's, it's nuts. Everything has been turned upside down where there are people that are being attacked, people who are going through some serious issues. Maybe they're having a heart attack. Maybe our car's on fire and people bring out their phones and start videoing instead of actually helping, you know? And so my, my thing is there are those people that have that ingrained in them, but I think there's a lot of people now with the culture that things have gone sideways. And I just wonder what would happen in a true grid down situation. I don't feel like it would necessarily be that different that if you did have somebody with say uh, a not or not the more modern selfish or self-centered attitude would have come across somebody that needed help and would want to help them. And uh, I know the, the Martin character sort of muses in his head. I think it's in chapter two where he's walking her home and he realizes that he's coming across really creepy about trying to help her get home and, the modern feminist movement sort of has boiled it down to there's only one reason why a man would be helping a woman and it's not good. And so he's thinking, well, I'm doomed with all of this. I don't think that way, but that's, you know, that's what the culture has hung on my head. So he kind of gives up and just says, ah, you're right. Fine. Go on home. And uh, yeah, she's a little naive, but uh, I've seen enough naive out there to think she's not that much out of place. Yeah, no. Yeah. Especially when you're coming from this, um, the perspective where a lot of uh, the thinking for those that are self more self-reliant, uh, the preparedness community, you know, we, we have a little bit more of that ingrained in us compared to some of the, uh, a lot of the public out there. And so uh, that, I thought that was kind of interesting. So um, going, going back to, to Martin in, in this thing, do you think then in, in his boy scout attitude, do you think that part of, the, the reason why he was able to help. And of course, this is, you know, we're just talking about the character here is because he had some kind of relationship with. So does that ability to help other people, does that increase because of our relationships? Uh, or is it, I mean, is it easier to not think about, not help, not stop for people that we don't know? In this case, in the character's case, I think there is a certain measure of uh, Susan is an acquaintance, nobody that he's, 
Uh, he even admits, I think, in chapter two that he's never seen her outside of the bank. She's just a bank teller that he deals with. But she's still somebody kind of on the periphery of his acquaintances. So that does make it a little harder to just abandon them to the wolves because now there's there's somebody. So there is a certain measure of that obligation or at least feeling a little more obliged to help somebody that you know, at least a little bit, as opposed to the total stranger. I, I think that's a topic that we don't, I mean, we, we see it maybe in articles that people have written. Uh, we can see it in books that, you know, uh, fiction, dystopian fiction um, and different things like that. But until we get to a real emergency situation and we have to deal with it, um, I, I mean, a lot of people don't probably don't think about how they would truly respond in this kind of situation. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of articles. I've read a lot of articles. I've posted a lot of articles on Prepper website. But I think that there's a big difference when it really boils down to um, you being in the moment and helping people out. And so, um, you know, that's, that's one of those things I think people should consider and should think about. And I like that. Martin's struggle a lot of the time is is with this, you know, how does this look? How does this I think it's real how, how he how he deals with it. So um, moving moving from from that, one of the things that is a, a prominent part of Martin's uh, you know, of his character and what he's dealing with is his bag. I mean, he dips into his bag a whole lot. However, he doesn't he doesn't have the typical stuff that you know when we talk about when we read articles about hey what does your get home bag have in it and and what does your bug out bag have in it and all the the tactical stuff in it he he does not have the typical stuff that people in the preparedness community would usually have and what we talk about so why did you choose not to have a, a tricked out bag for him well that was a deliberate choice uh Part of it is because I've read quite a bit of post-apocalyptic fiction uh, with the prepper, prepper type person who would have his bag with him. And he seemed to always have the just right thing in his bag. So he's running along and he comes to a chain link fence that's locked and he reaches into his bag and he pulls out his carbide bolt cutters and he cuts through the lock. And I'm thinking, why would he have a carbide bolt cutter in his backpack? You know, so that I'd read enough of that where I just kept musing and thinking, well, that was awfully handy that he just happened to have the just right thing. But then I also thought that's if you added up all that stuff that the guy was carrying around, how's he carrying it? Or uh, another one, he's he's driving in his Jeep and he just happens to have everything he needs in his Jeep. Or um, what was it? In uh, one of Rawls's stories, they want to fortify a house and there just happens to be a bunch of half inch plate steel laying out back that they can make shutters out of. And I'm thinking, well, that's not real. Mm -hmm. You know, in the real life, you, you just don't happen to have everything just right. And it sort of struck me as kind of like Mary Poppins's bag that whatever they needed, they could pull out. And uh, so that, no, that's, uh, that's not real. So I was going with somebody that had some stuff and he, you know, he, he talks about that in his mental dialogue in, in book one where, or chapter one, where he's thinking, well, you know, I had some stuff, but I was putting in for a while and I gave up for a while. And I was putting in more and I ate all the snack bars. And I thought, well, that's real life. Yep. If you know you got snack bars under your desk and you're hungry, you're going to rate it. And then if things go down after you've rated it, well, there you go. You cooked your goose. So uh, I was trying to put a little reality in that he doesn't have just everything that could be wanted. Uh, 
So I wanted him to have to improvise a little more rather than have the just right gadget for every occasion that he's got to be a little more MacGyver than Mary Poppins. So that's why. I, I love that. And you were thinking, I was thinking the same thing. And I don't know if we've ever talked about that before, the Mary Poppins bug out bag where, yeah, you reach in there and you have everything, you know, in, in the world and uh, it's light for you to carry, you know, a uh, uh, hundred miles and, and you don't sweat it at all. So uh, I, I liked the beginning. Uh, I guess it was chapter one. Uh, maybe it was chapter two when he's realizing, Hey, he needs to go ahead and, and figure out a way to get home. And he's looking around for like food. You know, he's like, OK, what, because he's eaten the, the bars, he's looking around. And he's like, OK, here's some uh, some old. Uh, what, what was it like a bagel, an old bagel, yeah, an old bagel from a, a client meeting? And, I, you know, if you've worked in an office, you look in the fridge and there's old stuff that nobody wants to eat. And I thought, well, that could be what you get to pick from. Yeah, I, I think that's that's reasonable. Um, we, we probably don't think about I mean, I've thought about that. Like if, if I was at work and I needed to walk home and I've talked about this uh, extensively, I don't work very far away from home. So it wouldn't take me long to get home, but I've thought about what would I want to pick up from work? What kinds of things, you know, do I have around that I would take with me to, to make sure that I, you know, I have with me because I probably am not coming back to, to the office ever. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that um, maybe a good, uh, you know, a, a good test, uh, a, a good kind of uh, thought uh, process to go through is just like, look around your office, look around your workplace. What kinds of things would you take with you if you had to leave and, and never come back? Or if you had to take something to drink or eat or, or whatever that might be. So uh, I really loved that he did that. And I love that it was a more reasonable get home bag. I think that is uh that's more reality for a lot of people. You know, we, we like to think that we have everything that we possibly would need, but I think that's reality is you raid your, your bars, you raid the, the money, the cash that you have. Uh, I was reading something this last week, I think, where someone is like, Hey, I had some extra money here and my wife used it and I didn't have it, you know, when I, when I needed it. And so uh, I think that was great. And yeah. I think there's the reality too, is that you're, I think most people are probably, able to admit that they like to think they're ready. But if you really asked them, they'd say, yeah, you know, I'm not quite as ready as I want to be. Mm -hmm. So then what happens if the crisis happens when you're not quite as ready as you want to be? You just got to go with it. Yeah, yeah. You, do, you don't get to do a redo or, a re, you know, a do over. It's like, all right, here I am. I, I got to make this happen. And I think, you know, this wasn't probably something that we, we would have talked about, but I think one of the important things is knowing skills, having skills, the ability to improvise. And already you've brought that up. The, the ability to improvise is uh, important, you know, to, to be able to do this. When you thought about this character and uh, the knowledge, his background knowledge, where is he coming from with that background knowledge to be able to do some of the things that he's done? Well, I had him be a, a downtown office worker and kind of a former software guy so that he's basically not uh, Ewell Gibbons. He's not a survivalist who just happens to be working downtown. How handy would that be? But, uh, you know, he's a software guy. And that's, you know, he and Susan are chatting and he's saying, you know, I have no war stories. I do software. How boring is that? But he's got his homestead, or at least at home, it's a little more rustic and he's used to improvising more for surviving ice storms and things. So he's got a little more background. He's not the total city person, 
uh, but he has to draw on that. And even then, there's a lot of improvising. It's just, well, I have no idea. I have to go and do something. So he's, uh, he's kind of making it up as he goes. But part of it, too, is at least having a kind of creative head on his shoulders to say, well, here I am and I'm sleeping under a bridge. And now what do I do? Figuring it out as he goes. I, I think that's a skill that we, we don't always talk about either in the preparedness community is being able to improvise and be creative. Um, and if you have that knowledge or at least have an idea, you can kind of move from there. So uh, I, I, I like that he does a lot of that uh, in the book as far as I, I've read, I've listened to, I guess. So if you were to write this from the perspective of a character who really did prepare, someone who was you know ready to go and had had the bag and had all that, uh, how would the contents of his bag be similar and how would they be different? Well, similar, he would probably still have his metal water bottle because that's good for boiling and he'd still have his first aid kit. Uh, that's a good thing. He had a change of clothes. That's a good thing. One of the things that I could see that he didn't have, especially for somebody who thought he was going to have to sleep in the woods for two nights, is he didn't have any kind of sleeping arrangement. So I think his bag would have had uh, at least something like those SOS bivvies or something that's not overly bulky. It's not a whole sleeping bag. You might have had a tube tent, uh, you know, some of those little things. And uh, those are actually the kind of thing in those articles that I've done for you many years ago about uh, testing my bug out bag was part of the impetus behind that, that if I was going to have to sleep in the woods, what would I want to have? And so I was testing out different things and like finding out that those emergency blanket uh, sleeping bags, uh, you sweat really bad at night and everything is really wet by, by the morning and now you're cold and wet. Uh, so, you know, it's testing those things out that, yeah, well, Martin hadn't done that, but if he was more prepared, he'd have done that testing and been ready and uh, had those things. He probably would have had like one of those little uh, solid fuel Esbit stoves or something for boiling water if the sticks are all wet. But he didn't have that either. But he still had his, uh, his he had his Bic lighter and he knew how to find dry wood. So like you say, for the skills, what he lacked in stuff, he was making up with uh, a little creative skill work. Definitely. I, I I love that. So, uh, and, and the thing is, if you would have had a tube tent, you probably wouldn't have slept in it anyway. He would have given it to Susan. And so he would have uh, still been out, you know. <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's one of the things that I was thinking about, too, is that uh, I can't remember the exact quote from Mike Tyson, that uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yep. That you can have everything you think you're going to need in your bug out bag. And then you find out you're traveling with an elderly person or you're traveling with a small child or or something that you really didn't plan on. So it's pretty near impossible to have every contingency thought out that I'm going to have a folding walker in my bag in case I have an old person or I'm going to I'm going to have some Legos in case I'm going with a small child. I mean, you just can't plan for everything. So then the question is, you know, you, you think you're all set, like you say, with the tube tent, you would have thought, well, I've got my tube tent. Well, now you got another person. What are you going to do? If you don't know them that well, you're not going to sleep right beside them. So, uh, you know, improvisation still shows up, even if you think you've got everything in your bag. Very true. Very true. One of those things for, for us to really consider in the preparedness community, especially those that live, you know, that, that live like we, we feel like we have everything under control. 
you know, and that's just one of the, you got to be ready. You have to be ready for anything to happen and, and don't be shocked. You know, I, I, uh, I always say that it's like, I'm, I'm ready just in case I'm kind of a optimistic uh, pessimist when it comes to uh, to life. Sometimes I know that's kind of strange as being a pastor uh, to talk like that, but it's like, you know, I expect things to go wrong. And so I'm, I'm ready for them if they go wrong, or at least I'm not, I'm not ready for them, but I know that I'm, I need to be able to adjust and be flexible. I guess that's a better way of, of saying it there. And it seems like Martin and Susan do a lot of that on the way home. Um, when you were, when you were writing this, if Martin wasn't, uh, traveling with Susan, how long would it have taken him to get home? I mean, I'm sure you mapped that out, right? It was still, I had mapped it out as taking about three days just because it's about 50 miles. And I thought, realistically, eh, you're going to do maybe 16, 18 miles a day. Just because you can walk three miles an hour doesn't mean you can do it for 24 hours. So, you know, realistically, I thought, no, you're going to get, and so I was drawing circles and saying, well, here's about 16 or 18 miles away from where I start. And now where is there, if I was going to try to sleep someplace, where would I sleep? And then from there, another 16 or 18 miles. Now, where do I sleep? Also keeping in mind that if it was a grid down situation and people are all freaking out, I'm not going to just pull up a cardboard box on a sidewalk. So, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's a secure place. And the Martin character makes reference to a, a golf course that he thought he was going to get to, and he doesn't. But that was one of those where I mapped it out and I said, well, the first night I'm probably going to get maybe as far as this golf course, the woods around the golf course is probably remote enough that I could set up a little camp there and not be molested by anybody. And uh, so it was that kind of thing. I had sort of figured out, well, how far could I go? And then once I got there, where's there? So but, so how long does it take? I, I know that you haven't finished uh, the book yet, the audible version of it. How long does it uh, wind up taking them to get home. It still takes them three days. So it still takes three days. Yeah, that they end up spending the first night closer into town than what I was thinking, which was the golf course. But he's, you know, he's pretty much encumbered by his uh, his unintended travel partner. But you know, there's reality too. You, now you find yourself traveling with somebody that's not as fast as you are. What are you going to do? And then they spend the next night under that bridge mm -hmm. near the river. And I thought, well, that was one of the spots I figured I would pick out too. Because that was a good sort of unmolested kind of a place to be. So it still takes them three days. It's just a slightly different mix of travel versus adventure. Yeah. Because I already planned to have no adventures if I had to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and the thing is, you probably were like going to travel on the road. You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm able to go on the road and, uh, you know, like I would if I was driving a vehicle or whatever, that's usually better terrain and I can just kind of get through it. But uh, they're not able to do that. We'll we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, so speaking of the road, when they're on the road, Martin and Susan wind up in the middle of a shootout. So that this happens on their very first day of the lights going out. Is it reasonable to think that the world would devolve this much in one day where there's shootouts. Well, I've had other people comment and question that as well. Uh, although I'm, 
I kind of smile, though, because the more pulp-style prepper fiction, that's almost exactly what happens. Within a few hours of the lights going down, it's Mad Max, and everybody's running around clubbing each other. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem real to me. I mean, I've been in power outages, and everyone just kind of sits around waiting. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going crazy. Uh, but as a side note, in that first shootout, it's actually criminals. So you have a bunch of criminals who are trying to rob people. And that happens even in non-grid downtimes. And it's some uh, armed citizens who are resisting. So that's the shootout. It's actually not in the Mad Max situation of two groups of citizens are fighting over the last box of minute rice. It was uh, criminals. And I had one of the criminals get pinned down behind a guardrail. So that's why it's kind of a prolonged gunfight, because the criminals are trying to get their buddy out and the citizens don't want them to. And so they kind of keep shooting. And it is still a little bit prolonged, but, you know, crime happens. I mean, you look at Ferguson or Baltimore or anywhere else when there's a crisis, there's a criminal opportunists pop up almost that same day. It's very true. And, and I was purposeful in asking that because uh, people I, I know people have asked that and we're wondering, hey, I mean, this is really soon for this to kind of happen. But um, if they miss the fact that these were criminals looking for um, you know, an opportunity to rob people that were just standing still because traffic, people trying to get out of the city, traffic has, uh, it was at a standstill and they were able to, uh, to, you know, look at this opportunity to make a quick buck. And so I, I thought that was kind of, um, you know, a, a good thing to, to bring up is there's always, always going to be crime, no matter what, even in the day and age that we live in now, um, that's always going to continue. And then it just, uh, as the opportunities present themselves, as more opportunities present themselves, we will see that more and more. And that's something that people need to keep an eye out for. So now, I did have some fighting, like at the hotel, yeah. where people were fighting over it. And uh, the angry drivers and the road rage and that, but that that happens now. Mm -hmm. You have people going sort of way more ballistic than you think they should over a parking space, and there are just very edgy type A people out there that, for the most part, they pretty well behave themselves, but a little bit of stress and they kind of lose it. And I thought that that happens. So if you had a grid down situation where things weren't all comfortable and you weren't going to be able to get your way, some of those type A people are going to, they're going to lose it and they're going to get all cranky and road ragey. That's not Mad Max. That's just people fighting over the last Tickle Me Elmo on Black Friday. That, that kind of thing happens. <laughs> Tickle Me Elmo or just a regular old television, you know, it's, yep. it's, it's so nuts. All right. So most of the characters in the story don't realize that the lights are out at this at this very beginning. Right. At this, this first book. Uh, and they don't realize the lights are out and that they're not coming back anytime soon. How would someone tell the difference between a blackout and a true grid down failure? Well, I guess when we have uh, power outages here, one of the first things you're doing is looking up to see if your neighbor's lights are on so that, you know, was it a tree branch that took down my wire? and nobody else's. And a few times I've, uh, you know, gotten in the car and driven around a little bit to see if other neighborhoods or other streets are on. So you get a little sense of a scope. There's, uh, there's a number, an 800 number to the uh, power utility that you can call and you can get a recording that tells you that, yes, there's a widespread area and this and that county and uh, we're working on it as soon as possible. Well, what else are they gonna say? But at least it gives you an idea 
And so you can kind of gauge pretty quickly if it's just you, because if the lights are on a little further away, then it's not a massive thing like an EMP. So you say, all right, the lights are off on my half of the town, but somebody's going to be working on that. So you kind of don't freak out. But if you did hear that all kinds of other cities or towns were out, then you'd say, all right, this is this is way bigger than just uh, an ice storm. I mean, like one of the ice storms a while back, I got in the car to go see where the, uh, the trouble would be. And there were trees and power lines down on both ends of the road. So I really couldn't have gone anywhere if I wanted to. But that told me, all right, this is, this is not an EMP because there's a tree laying on the power lines. So I know where the problem is. I can see it. So there I would know it was regional, but if, if it was much bigger, that you'd hear that far away places that have nothing to do with you and your substation are out, that would tell you that it was bigger than just uh, an ice storm. The, uh, the Leo character in book one, he talks about that, that if you know that the outage is bigger than your area, you know it's going to take a long time because there are no out of area crews to come in and help you fix it. So it's just going to take that much longer. So that's just, I mean, even then, you don't even know why it's out. You just know the ramifications of if it's that big, it's going to take a long time. So I may as well get ready to deal with it. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, well, and, and I think part of it is, too, a, a lot of people don't consider. I mean, maybe now more people are, are waking up to how fragile our, our grid is. Definitely down here in Texas, because we had that ice storm last March, and uh, people realize how fragile it is, and, and people are still talking about it. Uh, we are going into winter, you know, I mean, not yet, but we will be going into it, and supposedly um, it's going to be, it's not going to be as bad as it was this last winter, but it's supposed to be a cold winter, so people are thinking about that and considering it and like, Hey, what would we do? And I know that I had a conversation with the coworker just, uh, just yesterday, actually, Hey, if, if we're in this situation, what, what would you do differently? But I think a lot of people are waking up to that, but I think a lot of people too are still, you know, in that mode is like the authorities will, will take care of it. You know, someone's going to, someone's on it. Someone's going to fix it. Someone's going to get it up and going pretty quickly. And so, Having that ability in that sense to uh, get information as, as much as possible, like you said, uh, you know, th that there that Leo character was talking about, uh, you know, the grid and how far and widespread it was. And I think the other thing is, is like how how are other government entities starting to respond, which kind of leads me to my my next question. Right. Because the characters start to encounter government instituted roadblocks. And again, I mean, because of it, Martin and Susan are having to, you know, divert around and, and have to go through the woods and have to go through all these other different places. And, you know, thank goodness he has a map and, and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that the government will be more of a hindrance uh, than a help in such a grid down situation? Well, I guess I'm a, a bit of a government pessimist and I guess it comes out that, uh, maybe paraphrasing Ronald Reagan about I'm here from the government and I'm here to help, that uh, it's more than likely not that much help. I mean, it's it's a lot of uh, Keystone cops running around doing something, but not necessarily all that helpful. Uh, the roadblocks are, well, part of it is, I think, somewhat realistic, but the other part of it is sort of storytelling. 
that if it was just, oh, they got in there, they started walking, they got home and the end, it'd be a 12 page book. <laughs> so you need a little bit of adventure in there. But we've seen that uh, governments sometimes respond in somewhat chaotic and a little bit irrational ways. I think of like the uh, in Hurricane Katrina or right after Hurricane Katrina, that sheriff's office decided to close that one bridge so that people couldn't walk out of New Orleans. You know, where did that come from? Why did he think that was a good idea? But he did. And the same with, uh, you know, law enforcement in New Orleans starting to confiscate people's guns because they just thought, well, it's dangerous for you to have a gun, so I'm going to take it away. There was no order to do so. This was just government officials kind of uh, acting off the cuff and acting rather badly. Or, uh, well, like with the uh, the impetus for the story with the, the Boston Marathon bombing, you know, they closed things down. South Station had armed policemen in front of it, you know, with ARs, evil ARs. And, uh, you know, they had roadblocks with uh, highway patrol guys. And, you know, so uh, it's not that unusual for the government to think, well, the way I'm going to fix things is by stopping people from moving around. I mean, we saw that in Australia and New Zealand now with uh, the COVID things. They're putting up all these roadblocks so that people can't move around. So that yeah, roadblocks would probably be something that somebody in government thought was a good idea so that you don't have mass migrations of people and it's hard to control them. It's always about the control. You know, you have to, you have to maintain control. So you can't give people free movement or you're not in control. And, and it's when you think about it, and I guess at least in the book, it's a very loose roadblock because you don't have that many officers that can manage you know all the different entries and and uh, out points and and in points and all that kind of stuff into a city or whatever so i mean that would it wouldn't last very long uh you know for the, that wouldn't go very long but it's still disruptive if if you were trying to to get home you know there, there are people that are listening to this that do travel for a living and if they were caught in an emergency situation away from home they would have to find their way home and 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 do that so um they would, you know, it, that would be a, a real big hindrance if you didn't have a map or a way to figure out how to get around certain situations. Um, I just, I thought about this because this is something that I always had in the back of my mind. If, if I was trying to get home, um, I would want to have some kind of a fold up bike. Did, did that ever come into your thinking that that might be something that you could do? Several other people that had read the story, uh, also told me that, oh, he should have a fold-up bike. And uh, I worked with a guy that had a fold-up bike that he also then took on the train with him, and then he rode it from North Station. Uh, it was kind of an ungainly thing. I mean, it sounds like it's a handy thing, but you know, it was it was a little like trying to carry a Stairmaster up the stairs. I mean, it was it was not as handy as it sounds. And it occurred to me that, yeah, if you really, really thought that the power was going to go out, you would buy a folding bike and you would keep it at work. But how many people really, really think the power is going to go out enough to spend a few hundred dollars on something that's going to sit at work and not get used? So a lot of people, I think, veto the idea just because it doesn't have a, a more immediate application. And then, of course, that wouldn't have helped him a lot if he decided he was going to help Susan. Now he's got one bike and two people. So... Uh, you know, we're back to that problem. You can have all the plan you want, but then something's going to mess it up. That's right. Those, those follow bikes don't have a very big handlebars no. <laughs> to be able to do that. Um, the, the other, the other thing is, is that, you know, he probably would have got 
uh, on the bike and started moving a lot faster, wouldn't have had time to find Susan. So uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a, maybe that's a book that you write later on. Like what would have happened if this, <laughs> if, uh, if you didn't find Susan, but that would have, again, be a 12, 12 page book, I guess, for you. <laughs> so some people advocate, we hear about this a lot in the preparedness community, uh, of having hidden caches of food and supplies and uh, along a bug out uh, route or whatever it might be. Martin hadn't done anything like that. Uh, why, why was that the case? Why, why didn't he have some kind of hidden cache along the way? Well, one sort of goes back to the, uh, the not folding bike that if he really didn't think like it's going to happen any month now, he might have gotten the folding bike because he thought he was going to use it in a month. Uh, caches are kind of the same way, but a little more deliberate, where you're actually putting a bunch of stuff into a PVC tube and going out and burying it. So you're really kind of committed to thinking this is going to happen and I'm going to need this stuff or want this stuff by this point. Well, obviously, Martin hadn't gotten that committed to the inevitability of having to walk home, which, again, I think back it's to uh, the sort of real world is most people really aren't convinced it's going to happen next week. Because if they did think it was going to happen next week, they'd behave entirely differently. But they don't. So they're going to get caught short. Now, another reason is that, and I read those articles too about the hidden caches. And I'm thinking most of these people must live out in the Midwest hmm. where there's a whole lot of nothing in between the towns. Hmm. But out here, uh, you know, Eastern Massachusetts, Southern New Hampshire, it's all just like one big suburb that where one guy's yard ends, another guy's yard stops, or at least property. So that there really isn't much for unclaimed anything that you could go and drive up and start digging holes and have somebody next door going, hey, what are you doing? So uh, there isn't, isn't a whole lot of anywhere to put a cache that isn't already somebody's yard. So there's the problem there, as well as I sort of think, well, whatever you're putting there, you have to be willing to not have it because some kid's going to go poking around and he's going to go, hey, cool, look at all this neat stuff. Well, you're not going to put a gun in there, certainly. So especially not in Massachusetts. The possibility out here of somebody finding your cash and it not being there when you want it seems pretty great. Because like you say, it's all somebody else's property. There's not a whole lot of, well, what would you call that? Un not uninhabited sort of uh, land that nobody cares about enough that you could go do something and no one would know or care. That's why he doesn't have a cash. A couple of reasons why he doesn't have a cash. Although maybe that's another story is that he's got all these caches and he, they keep being uh, emptied out by uh, adventurous eight-year-old boys who found them. <laughs> so now he's got to improvise because none of his caches have anything left in them. That would, that would be funny. That would be very interesting. Yeah. You know, a lot of people talk about caches and like, Hey, how do you, how do you protect them and, and all the different things about them? And I just like, I, that, that wasn't something that ever, that I ever thought was something that I wanted to do, you know, and I just, uh, I don't know, that's just my, my way of thinking and, and my way around it. So, uh, man, we are 13 chapters into, at, at the time of this recording, we're recording this podcast, you're 13 chapters into it. How many more chapters do we have before the end of the book? Well, actually, I just posted chapter 12. I'm 13 episodes, but one of them was a Q&A. Okay, okay. Uh, so I just posted chapter 12. There's 14 chapters to the book. So they're getting closer to getting home. Okay. Uh, so a couple more chapters left. So where, where um, 
are you are you going to i mean are you thinking about doing the second audible book for that um going into book two how, how many for those that are not familiar with your series how many books do you have in this series there's five books in the series okay and it started out thinking that i was just going to do the one book and then i was done and then somebody said yeah well what happens after that and so then i had to oh, okay well this happens after that so at some point you have to stop otherwise you're doing it perpetually yeah all right then right now there's five books there's five is there any thought of going past that yeah some i distracted myself with a different book project and there might be a sequel to that one that's further distracting but i've got a couple ideas for what might be book six but i have to have to flesh that out a little more well sounds good i i want to tell you i i appreciate and i i know that i've told you this before just privately, but publicly, I want to say I appreciate that there's not a lot of, you know, there's, there's not any cussing, there's not any, uh, you know, sex and, and things like that in there. Um, I know that there, those books are out there for people and people can, uh, if, if that's something that they are looking forward to, they can go ahead and, and find those. But uh, those that want the fiction, the, the prepper fiction, the dystopian uh, aspect of it, but they want a clean book, a good story. Um, your series is, is is right up there. And so I greatly appreciate it. I was sharing that there was a, an audio book that I, that I downloaded from someone that is always recommended. I mean, I was only about three or four minutes into it and there was just so much cussing and I'm not one that, that is around that a lot. And I don't necessarily want to put that into my ears you know, and so it's like, I can't, I can't listen to this, you know, okay, I got to stop. So I greatly appreciate that there are writers out there that are writing uh, for, for the preparedness community that are the fiction that we would like to read, but they're clean. And so I uh, greatly appreciate that. Well, I'm glad you liked it. As I was writing it, I thought there's really no need for that. I mean, people sprinkle it in there, but I think because they think it makes it seem gritty or more real. But I thought, yeah, I don't know. Get a vocabulary. You don't need that. There are people that just don't cuss, right? I mean, there, there are people that don't do that. Although, I don't know, the, the world has changed so much. I mean, you just if you used to not hear it on tel television, and now you just hear it everywhere. It's just like no problem whatsoever. But uh, good, good stuff there and uh, a good story and good prepared. A lot of great preparedness information. Again, the real, real stuff. Do you sprinkle that throughout all the other books as well? I try to. Uh, and again, it was sort of projecting that, well, if I did have a grid down situation long term and I was stuck here at home, what would I do? And, you know, there's quite a few things that I've sprinkled in there that are things that I've done. Now, I haven't made a, a gasifier yet, but I know how to. So, uh, you know, there's I tried to sprinkle in those. How, how are you going to improvise as opposed to having the carbide bolt cutters? You got to do something else. Well, and, and you do you do live it right. I mean, it's not like you're just, uh, you know, living in Boston writing this stuff. I mean, you truly live in a, on a homestead. Uh, you know, I, I know that you you garden and you raise chickens and you do all this kind of stuff and you and you uh, you, you write articles over at mick-roland.com and uh, you practice a lot of this kind of stuff so that you can speak to the practicality of it and uh, if it works or not. So uh, that, I mean, I, I love that aspect of it that you're actually doing that. Um, that's um, it's it's one of those. It brings that um, 
that aspect of like, hey, this is real. This person is really walking the walk that they're talking. So uh, that's really cool about you. And I uh, just wanted to kind of put that out there for everybody. Is there anything you want to share before we close out here? No, I think we've talked longer than I thought we would. <laughs> well, good stuff. We have a lot to talk about. And I'm sure, you know, we could do this again, uh, you know, later on as you continue moving forward with uh, with the series and, and wherever you're going to go with the audible aspect of it. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, your books and, and what you're doing? Well, I've got the website, which is mick-roland.com, which has both the blog and about the books. They're available from Amazon, but there's links on there. So uh, they're both uh, Kindle-based, Kindle Unlimited, and uh, paperback, if you, like, if you like paper. So they're all available, but mickroland.com. But then you have to put the dash in there. Otherwise, you get microland.com, <laughs> which is a something, but it's not me. <laughs> it's, always, it's always something that we always, uh, I love uh, thinking about messing around with you on that, on that one. What about the podcast? Where can they find the podcast? Well, it's on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, Podbean is who hosts it. So you can go to podbean.com. You can type in Siege of New Hampshire. It should show up. Same with uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, Google Podcasts as well. Trying to think it's on uh, iHeartRadio and Spotify. It's a variety of places that you can search and just search for Siege of New Hampshire and hopefully it comes up. And, and it does. It's uh, it's all over the place now. So that's good. It's been picked up. Well, Mick, hey, thanks so much for hanging out with us on the podcast. And uh, we wish you all the best. We look forward to the, to the end of the story and uh, the continuation of the story, actually. So thanks so much for hanging out with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. God bless. That was my conversation with Todd Sepulveda, editor of The Prepper Website. You can check out Todd's recent preparedness podcasts at thepreparednesswebsitepodcast.com. His episode on Our Vulnerable Power Grid discusses just the sort of scenario that the Siege of New Hampshire characters find themselves in. Thanks for listening.